Welcome to Book of Mormon History. We provide easy access to current research for personal study, and you can find us online at www.bookofmormonhistory.com. Today, we're going to be talking about the inside geography of the Book of Mormon map with expert and scholar Dr. Tyler Griffin. Let's listen in to our conversation. Welcome, everybody, to Book of Mormon History Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Gailey. First, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in and for all the support I got, whether it was in person, email, text. The launch went great. To use the phrase of my guest today, onward and upward. Today, we're going to be talking about geography and the inside Book of Mormon map. For this topic, it's my pleasure to introduce a, a true expert on the Book of Mormon and geography, Dr. Tyler Griffin. He is an associate professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. He holds a bachelor's in electrical engineering and advanced degrees in instructional technology. He has 20 years of professional teaching experience. He teaches over a 1,000 students per semester. He's an author of uh, a published book, When Heaven Feels Distant, and is the co-founder and co-director of Virtual Scriptures. Dr. Griffin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you please just briefly maybe introduce yourself to the audience today? Yes. So I, I, my story's kind of interesting. If you had told me 20 years ago that I would be a religion professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, I, I would have laughed at you because at the time, obviously, as you've already mentioned, I was working on a degree in electrical engineering, and I wanted to be a seminary teacher in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I didn't know if that was going to work out because a lot of people want to do that. And when it did work out, I found myself in a classroom teaching scriptures with a degree in electrical engineering, and and those two worlds didn't really intersect very much. So I started looking for areas where I could work on a master's degree with some some crossover, and that's what, what led me to instructional technology, where I could use some of my, my geekiness that I, I will call it God-given geekiness, <laughs> in, in a way to help build faith and to help build knowledge and, and intelligence and motivation for people to try a little harder to be a little better as disciples of Christ. And so that was very, very beneficial for, for opening all kinds of doors that I didn't know at the time were going to open, uh, one of them being to be able to come down here to BYU with, with all of the resources that are now available for me to work on projects like the Virtual Scriptures affords us. So you're passionate about technology, art, education, and the Book of Mormon. You just mentioned virtual scriptures. That's a that's some, a way to combine all of those into one forum as a delivery mechanism, right? Yeah, yeah. The idea being sometimes you'll get new advances in technology that will create such a, an excitement or, or a novelty effect, if you will, that it can actually take people's attention and focus and efforts away from the target. And for me, the target is always the Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ, to bring souls to Christ, which is the chief message of the Book of Mormon. So in creating digital resources, the intent is never to have that be the focus and for people to get so excited about the technology that they forget the reason why the book even exists in the first place. So these are all intended to be means to remove pain points for people, confusing points for people, uh, areas that cause them to, to glaze over their eyes as they're reading through the scriptures 
and say, I'm confused, which causes them to zone out, which causes them to be less likely to connect with the Lord and to feel edified in their experience. So that's, that's what we're trying to do here. You can find it on virtualscriptures.org, but maybe you could just give a little bit of, of what that project is and what's available for people to access there. Yeah, this is this is an ongoing process here at BYU. Taylor Halverson and Seth Holiday and I, uh, about seven years ago, started this group here at BYU called Virtual Scriptures Group. Our whole purpose is to try to use technology that we feel is God-given. It's inspired from heaven. And so we're just trying to produce content that help people unlock the black words on the white page or the white screen of Scripture whether it be in the Book of Mormon or the New Testament. So we have uh, virtualscriptures.org. You can see where you can access, a f- and everything's free. We finance it in-house. We're not trying to make money on this. So you can do a 3D tour of Jerusalem at the time of Christ, for instance. And, and we're working on a plan for next year to start expanding that out to include more than just Jerusalem, to expand out to Bethlehem and Bethany and Bethphage and maybe down to Jericho and the Jordan River Valley and in future years up into Galilee. So people, as they're reading the words of the New Testament in that context, they can actually start to get an idea of scope and scale and distance and time and a sense of place. So these stories become more real, more more motivating to them to, to pattern their life after, after the Lord. That's incredible. In fact, I have a, a living testimony of having gone into the Holy of Holies through that app and, and surviving. <laughs> so I was I was pretty I was pretty stoked That's about that. Great. And you and you weren't the high priest, and it wasn't Yom Kippur or the Day of I, Atonement, and you still got to go in. Isn't that amazing? That's right. No animals were slaughtered in the making of this app, right? <laughs> there you go. That's the key. Along the same lines with the New Testament, our subject today is is Book of Mormon geography, the inside map. So virtualscriptures.org has this whole program where you can interact chapter by chapter with the Book of Mormon in a real-world setting when it comes to the old world and the inside map when it comes to the promised land. Correct. So, And that is currently under major revision. Uh, I've got a research assistant helping me on the programming side, and I'm currently modifying the map a little bit to fit that model. But then it will take you chapter by chapter, like you said, in the old world using the real map and in the new world using our, our internal map. And it will show you changes that occur when a city first is mentioned, when it's built, when it changes hands from the Nephites to the Lamanites or back again, then the colors will change. And so it will just help people make better sense of of all the migrations and the movements and the missionary journeys and the military campaigns, because it can get pretty confusing for people. Why is the inside map an important first step, or why is it something that people should be considering? There's over a hundred different external maps. Uh, we could count different areas in different places. Why is the inside map important to study? The inside map is is fascinating because the intent is for readers to get a sense of directionality and relative distance as it's described in the Book of Mormon text itself, to the point where we fully intend for people to take our internal map and squeeze it, compress it, stretch it, twist it, contort it, adjust it to fit whatever external model you prefer. 
to say, you know, you can fight for whether you think it's in Baja or the heartland or in one of the, the dozens of, of models in Mesoamerica or in multiple models down in South America. That's totally fine. That doesn't bother us at all. But wherever your model is, there are certain things that it just has to fit the text when it mentions different cities and different geographic features. So one piece is taking this map that has been created and is available on virtual scriptures, taking this map and using it as giving primary details that to fit a real world setting, whoever you are, whatever real world setting that might be. But the other piece, I think, is taking it and using the map while interacting with your reading, your personal study. I know I'm not the only one that has read through the Alma Wars and maybe my mind starts wandering a little bit. I start to drift. I start to uh, maybe fade. And then I go back. No, I got to reread this chapter. I, I just I didn't capture it. Part of what this tool has done for me is allow me to stay engaged as I'm going through the text. I love that. I love that, Joshua. That that idea right there is an answer to our prayer. That's That's the purpose is to help people take a closer look at the book without geography being the focal point. But because geography or plates or other things, sometimes the Isaiah chapters, sometimes they can be so confusing to people that they end up zoning out and not getting anything out of their, their time in the scriptures, whether it be individually or in a class or in a family scripture study setting or a one-on-one you know, counseling session between a leader and a, and a member of the church, whatever it may be. Wow, what a difference to be able to just say, look, here's what's going on. Now you don't need to be confused. Now we can focus on the principles and the doctrine. Absolutely. I just want to say for anybody that's listening, I I really, when we launch this, I want to encourage everybody, listen to the podcast, but I'd like you to go back and later have a printout of the map with you as we're talking so you can follow along because we're going to start, Dr. Griffin and I are going to start talking about different places and I'd really like for everybody to kind of key in with a map at their side, have this plugged in in your earbuds and and just go so that you can be part of the drone that's flying over the lands as we're talking. <laughs> I love that imagery. That's cool. Could you just take a, a minute, Dr. Griffin, and, and give us a general lay of the land from southwest to northeast as best as we can, recognizing that there's interpretations in everything? Absolutely. The power of Book of Mormon geography at the at the 30,000-foot level is to see the flow, the major flow uh, or movements of the big groups of people. So when Lehi lands in the land of the first inheritance, it's pretty clear that that's on the western seashore near the land of Nephi, simply because of Mormon's description in Alma 22, starting in verse 27, when he says, the king sent a proclamation throughout all the land amongst all his people who were in the land, which was in all the regions round about, which was bordering even to the sea on the east and on the west, which was divided from the land of Zarahemla by a narrow strip of wilderness, which ran from the sea east even to the sea west and round about on the borders of the seashore. You have the land that's separated in the land southward by that narrow strip of wilderness. So you have Nephi on the south, which is higher in elevation than Zarahemla on the north, lower in elevation. But then he starts describing the wildernesses. And in this passage, he describes that there's a wilderness on the west of the land of Zarahemla, a wilderness on the west 
of the land of Nephi and a wilderness on the east of the land of Zarahemla. So it's like a backwards or a mirror image of the number four. So you have this this wilderness that comes down the full western side and only listed on the eastern side in the land of Zarahemla with that narrow strip that separates the two lands, Zarahemla from Nephi. And so when Nephi runs into problems with his brothers after his father's death, he takes those who will follow him. He leaves the land of the first inheritance, travels many days journey into the wilderness, and they find this place and they establish a city and it becomes Nephi. So for the next 300 years, just under 300 years, you have all of the Nephite population centered here in the land of Nephi, in the city of Nephi, and probably branching out into, you know, villages and other cities from there. But he just doesn't give us the details. And neither does Jacob, and neither does Enos. Mm. And you start getting a little more detail by the time you get to the book of Omni. But at that point, the Lamanites have now started to encroach so many times. We've had so many battles with them that that's when the Lord says leave. So now we leave that land, go northward, and that's where they discover the Mulekites. So they've been separated by about a 20-day journey from this entire civilization of Mulekites that also came out of the land of Jerusalem right around the same, shortly after Lehi's group had left, and they had no idea they were there, separated by a 20-day journey. So wherever you want the Book of Mormon to take place, you have to have the possibility for two large cultures to be separated by about three, just under three weeks journey and not ever have had contact with them because there's far enough separation that, that you didn't even know that they were there. So once you then bring these two groups together, you get the Nephites joining with the Mulekites, but the Nephites have the records. They brought the plates. They still retain a belief in God. They know their history. The Mulekites over those 300 years seem to have lost a lot of their language, their culture, their place in, in Israelite history. And so he who rules the pen has more likely <laughs> capacity to rule history and the land, right? Absolutely. So Mosiah, with this smaller group of Nephites, takes over the leadership, the throne, for the much bigger group of Mulekites, who, ironically, are descendants from King Zedekiah of the tribe of Judah, to whom they felt the leadership and the, the kingly thrones rightly belonged. Good possibilities that later on in the book, the kingmen are probably Mulekites, saying, wait a minute. Right. Why are we letting this group of Manassehites have our throne? It's ours. We're of high and noble birth. We, we get it. And that's where you get that only major migration heading south being the one of Zenith and his group of Nephites heading back up to the land of Nephi, which was a southward migration. So they're going to be there for about 80 years, 80 plus years before they're rescued. Um, Limhi's group is rescued and brought back to Zarahemla. So you have a narrow strip of wilderness. The headwaters of Sidon are there. Correct. And Zarahemla is almost in this river basin mm -hmm. surrounded with mountainous regions. If we're interpreting wilderness that way, it's yeah. an informed interpretation. As we look at elevation, you go from Nephi down to Zarahemla. You go from Zarahemla up to Nephi. And descriptions of places compared to the river Sidon are always east of Sidon or west of Sidon. So when you look at elevation and you combine that in relation to where things are located with the river, it seems 
strong to say Riverside and flows generally northward. That and Zarahemla is in this river basin surrounded with mountainous regions to the south, east, and west. You're absolutely right. You worded that very well. We don't know that for absolute certainty, but that sure seems to be where it's headed because, like you mentioned, we never once have a reference north of the River Sidon or south of the River Sidon. It's always east of Sidon or west of Sidon. But in the head area where where the River Sidon begins always associated associated with the land of Manti, the city of Manti. It seems to mention that it that it goes from the east to the west. So in the internal map depiction that I have, you'll notice that the the beginning phase, the major phase of the River Sidon, it's flowing from the east towards the west before it then heads in a northern direction up towards Zarahemla. And then from there, Bountiful is a land north of Zarahemla, bordering right along the land desolation, which is the land northward, the narrow necks right there. Let's let's push our way into more of the unknown towards okay. the land northward and work our way through this this flyover of the, the territory. Absolutely. There is a lot of debate. Is it this hourglass-shaped thing that we have here, or is it a peninsula? Is it a strip of land that should look different. I don't know, but when doing an internal map, you have to go, in my opinion, you have to go with what is known as Occam's razor, which is the simplest solution. Just start there. And there there are enough stories that talk about Bountiful being this land and this city specifically that is near the narrow neck that leads to the land northward. And there are stories where for instance, in Alma 22, again, it says on the line Bountiful to Desolation, it's a day and a half's journey from the east to the West Sea. So it doesn't ever say from the sea east to the sea west. It says it's a day and a half's journey for a Nephite on the line Bountiful Desolation to the West Sea. So I draw a line between the city. This is the way I interpret it. Draw a line between the city of Bountiful and the city of Desolation. And anywhere on that line, it's going to take a Nephite about a day and a half to walk from that line over to the sea west. I, I agree with that completely. Totally on board with that versus it being the complete necessarily no. length of the narrow neck. I think that's a distinction we have to make versus how wide is this narrow neck. Correct. We're, we're measuring from the line on the edge of Bountiful to the western seashore, not necessarily the east seashore to the west seashore. Yeah, because Mormon's pretty careful when he puts in the word sea. Like with the narrow strip of wilderness down in the, the land southward, he tells you the narrow strip of wilderness which ran from the sea east to the sea west. He doesn't say from the sea east to the west. He says from the sea east to the sea west. But with the line bountiful desolation... The, the actual wording is, now it was only the distance of a day and a half's journey for a Nephite on the line Bountiful and the land desolation from the east to the west sea. So obviously the line from Bountiful desolation is going to be our eastward marker and the sea west is our westward marker. That's a day and a half's journey. But later on, when Amalickiah is making his conquest in Alma 51 and got all the way to Mulek, he's on his way to Bountiful. He wants Bountiful because then he can lock up that north passage, and now he has the Nephites surrounded. Strategically, for a commander, that is like critical mm. that you defend that. And so Tiancum goes up there and stops him 
And that night, it says that Amalekiah's men were camped out basically on the seashore, and Tiancum's men were camped in the regions of the land bountiful. So you know that the land bountiful is close enough to the sea east that your distance from sea east to sea west can't be multiple weeks journey for this to work in the story, but it also doesn't have to be a day and a half's journey from sea east to sea west. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that absolutely makes sense, protecting that area, not getting surrounded, not getting encompassed around from south. We know the Lamanites often encroach along the west wilderness, and then the goal for them almost throughout the whole story is surround them, get to the top, and hit them on both sides. Yes. And ultimately, when you look at the end of the Book of Mormon and when we go into the land northward for our final stop on the flyover, that's ultimately what happens, right? That's the that's the final loss is when that happens. It, it, it's pretty much the political end of the Nephites. Absolutely. And so when, when we retreat into desolation and we've given up all of the land of Zarahemla, the entire land southward, this is the geopolitical end the beginning of the geopolitical end for what we know as the Nephites. Mm. But but we have to be careful to say all the Nephites were destroyed because there are enough clues in the text to say, wow, we've had a lot of major migrations of Nephites and Lamanites, in for that matter, earlier on, who have gone exceedingly far northward is the, the wording, and they've spread into all parts of the land. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to find Nephite and Lamanite artifacts or remnants in all kinds of places because people just didn't stay put. Our Book of Mormon message and our storyline stayed down in the land southward for the most part and then at the end up into the lower parts of the land desolation. But these people are taking their traditions and their culture and intermixing with all kinds of people in all kinds of different places on the face of the land. And so some people have made the point, well, you can't really create a map inside or outside because of the great destruction in Third Nephi. The counterpoint to that, if I understand it correctly, is Mormon is the primary author of all geographic details within the Book of Mormon. He is living hundreds of years after the destruction described in Third Nephi, and he still is knowledgeable enough to create all of these reference points He's a soldier. Geography is important to him. Is that correct? Could you elaborate on that just, just for yeah, you, a moment? You've, you've, you've nailed it, meaning that the reality is, is the whole face of the land has changed, and a mountain appears where there used to be a city, and others have been swallowed up, and Moroni was swept out into the sea. That's why I kind of depict it out on a little bit of a, of a peninsula, make it really easy for it to just slough off into the ocean there or the sea. But the question then becomes, what does it mean that the whole face of the land was changed? You know, highways broken up, smooth places become rough, great and notable cities are, are sunk or burned or buried. Does the face of the land changing mean that the whole structure of the land changed or just the face, the surface? That's up for debate. I, I sure. don't have a I don't have a definitive answer to that question, but your point is the really powerful one. So the the amazing thing about Mormon here is you would expect that he would have a really really good grasp on the geography in 
the land of Zarahemla. That's where he is spending a lot of time. He also spent his early years up in the southern part of the land northward before his father, when, when Mormon was 11, brings him southward down into the land of Zarahemla. So he's got a pretty good lay of the land up north, but the majority of his time working as the chief captain is down in the land of Zarahemla in those early years. And it's remarkable that of our geographical references, the vast majority of them, where he's giving you actual distances and directions, are in the land of Zarahemla. Mm. You'll notice we don't get any distances, days, journeys, even even directionality in the land of Nephi. So all of our city placement down in the land of Nephi and the waters and all of that, that's very speculative. We just right. we don't know. Those are just kind of placed there far less sure than what we have in the land of Zarahemla because he gives you such detail. For instance, we know Melek is a three days journey northward to Ammonihah for Alma. And we know that Gideon is east of Sidon, east of Zarahemla, but it's a neighboring city over in the Valley of Gideon. And we know that Manti is going to be south because when they, multiple times when people are heading to Manti, they're heading towards Nephi and there's Manti, one of the entry points. We just, that just keeps coming out of the text, but we don't get those kinds of details down in the land of Nephi, nor up in the land of desolation. And I always think it's, it's important to note, even when we're missing that type of information, Missing that type of information makes sense. Captain Mormon here, General Mormon, is never on the f- aggressive side attacking in the land southward, yes. in the land of Nephi. He is on the Zarahemla side, retreating towards Bountiful, retreating eventually into the land northward. It, it's from there backwards. And so the lack of distances and times traveled, he doesn't have his army traveling in those areas to be able to relay some of those distances, right? Absolutely. He's, it's, it's interesting because the largest geographical description in the entire Book of Mormon comes to us in, in one block. And there are other places where he kind of starts concentrating some geographical detail. But the biggest by far is in chapter 22 of Alma, where it's that that segment after Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni, the four sons of Mosiah and their missionary companions have had such great success that the king of all of the Lamanites sends the epistle to all of the land of Nephi. And it's there where Mormon, it's almost as if he's saying, I've not been to these places, but here's a kind of a description of their land. And then he lumps in some descriptions of the land of Zarahemla and the whole land southward by the time we're done there. But he seems to be getting all of his geographical information regarding the land of Nephi from all these other sources that have come into his hands. But it's it feels like it's definitely not from a boots-on-the-ground perspective for Mormon. It's a second-hand telling of, well, this is what people say about it. And that's where librarian Mormon, scribal Mormon comes in versus general Mormon. Absolutely. I love it. Those kinds of things happen all over the place in this in this book, and it's just a beautiful testimony to me that this was written by these people in that day and have come to us by the gift and power of God. I love that. When we're looking at what people have said, there's over 500, 550 correspondences or, or 
places or things? Well, what is a correspondence when it comes to geography? How do you count to 500 or 550 different geographical items on the map? Good question. So that that whole, anytime you try to put a number on the geography, it gets pretty muddy really fast. So the 500 to 550 number refers to by name. So if it says the city of Nephiha, the city of Lehi, the Sidon River, or the River Sidon, the sea, the sea East or the Sea West, each one of those would be a tick mark towards the, that's a geographical reference. It's named place or feature or location that is named in the text. So that adds up to 550. And then there are hundreds of additional references that aren't by name, but imply all kinds of things associated with the geography. And so at the end of the day, this is an extremely complex story. It is phenomenal how how amazing the geography fits in, in a way that helps propel the story forward without getting in the way. The consistency internally is just off the charts. Out of those 550 named reference points in the text, I can only find two places where it seems like Mormon... I don't know what's going on. I, I, don't, I can't get inside of Mormon's head only two times. That is remarkable with so many stories that are separated by so many pages and so many events in the text itself, to have that level of internal consistency is just off the charts. 550 relative points and only two where you just sit back and say, I, I have no idea. Uh, exactly. I'm just not, not quite sure what's going on here. I can't figure out what he was doing here. I'll give you one. It's in Alma 51, verse 25. It's in the middle of those war chapters. Notice it says, and if you follow along on the map, it makes it beautifully easy to follow. Thus he went on, this is speaking of Amalekiah, taking possession of many cities, the city of Nephiha, the city of Lehi, the city of Morianton, the city of Omner, and the city of Gid, and the city of Mulek, all of which were on the east borders by the seashore. He's going in a, from south to north conquest. All of these cities are on your eastern seafront. Wherever you want the Book of Mormon to take place, there needs to be a sea east. And those cities are listed from south to north with Moroni being the farthest south city near the narrow strip of wilderness. And that's where Amalekiah has begun staging this war. One of those places that I can't figure out what Mormon's doing is right there. Because the verse right before that one says, verse 25, But it came to pass that Amalekiah would not suffer the Lamanites to go against the city of Nephiha to battle, but kept them down by the seashore, leaving them in every city to maintain and defend it. And then the very next verse opens with, And thus he went on taking possession of many cities, the city of Nephiha being the first one listed. That's odd to me that he would say he wouldn't let them go to Nephiha to battle. He wanted to stay down by the seashore. And yet the very next verse says that they took Nephiha. So either there's a passage of time that he didn't tell us about there, or he included Nephiha erroneously because it's not supposed to be down by the seashore. It's a little further inland between Moroni and Aaron when it's listed. But all the others, Lehi, Moranton, Omner, Gid, and Mulek are all by the seashore. So that's one little example of the two that I can find where I can't figure out what Mormon's doing with that. Right, right. And we're just not standing next to Mormon to ask the question. Exactly. 
I'm shocked that I can't find more of more. these places where we should be scratching our head going, I, I don't get it. It's just remarkable. 550 geographic references that just seem consistent, off the charts, incredible. You know, and, and this might be a good point to, to mention a, a place where geography actually helps enhance your understanding of the text in a way that becomes more applicable, more relevant and meaningful to us today, rather than just trying to better understand it in its historical context. In Alma 51, if you, if you zoom out on the map and you look at the whole land southward for a minute, ignore the land northward because that really doesn't, doesn't come into our story much until we pick up the, the Jaredite story in the Book of Ether. It comes in a little bit in Omni and the, the Mulekites landing there and then coming to Zarahemla originally. But for the most part, we're going to stick in the land southward. So if you look at those war chapters, they can get really confusing to people because there's so much movement going on. But what if you stepped back and said, wow, here's, here's Mormon, the chief of Bridger, who, who was made the chief captain of the Nephite armies when he was 15 years old, nearly 300 years after the coming of Christ. He cares a great deal about battle and about war and about strategy, and so he's using it as a, as a metaphor, as a parable, if you will, to teach incredible lessons. Well, what if you took at one level the land of Zarahemla as a symbolic representation of your own life, of your own discipleship, of your own desire to, to follow Christ, and the Lamanites being a representation symbolically of the adversary and of opposition, trying to to take away your freedom, your agency, your ability to live and choose and, and worship God and to bind you down, whether it be with addiction or with sin of any sort or, or taking away your freedoms in other ways. And so what you get is these war chapters are beautifully divided geographically by saying, wow, Alma 43 through 50, halfway through 51, Captain Moroni is taking effort after effort after effort to keep out sin or addiction or bondage that's that's seeking to come first through Zarahemna, then through, you know, Amalekiah when he sends the group up to Ammonihah and later on. And he's fortifying these people and the cities and their border and their lands, and it's beautiful. So chapters 43 through 51, the first half of 51, become this handbook to say, how can I keep sin out of my life, out of my family, out of my congregation? But then something shifts. In chapter 51, with the rise of the kingmen, we realize that the, the most dangerous enemy is not the enemy in the land of Nephi, the Lamanites. The most dangerous enemy is the enemy from within. Mm. And it's that civil war that takes place that then causes Captain Moroni to pull his soldiers and his men out of those extremely fortified cities in the south, Antiparic, Humanize, Ezra, Manti, and on the east, Moroni, Lehi, Morantum, Omner, and Gid, and Mulek, and he pulls them into the heart of the land to fight this civil war, and that's when Amalekiah comes in. And what used to be our strength now becomes our struggle, mm. and it's used against us. Those fortifications are now used against us, and that's real life. And then what you get is chapter 51 through 62 being a handbook for what do I do as an individual or as a parent or as a leader or a friend or a neighbor? What do I do 
to get rid of sin or addiction or major bondage that has taken root in my soul, what do I do? And you get this beautiful pattern through the geography of how to take these things on one at a time. Not getting overwhelmed, but just take them on one at a time. Conquering them back city by city by city. Or the analogy is when it's a a spiritual battle in our life, you just said one at a time. So using Captain Moroni as a a spiritual example, which Mormon definitely does, he names his son after the man, and allowing that to exemplify and, and build up spiritual content for our life. I love it. So you can't do that without understanding the geography no. that gets laid out on the inside of the Book no. of Mormon. And then you, you you transfer that forward, that lay of the land, you, you project that, so to speak, onto your own soul, onto your own family, your own setting, and you say, wow, Captain Moroni, in the first set of that, those war chapters, 43 and 44, which were kind of a separate entity, with Zarahemna, you'll notice the Lamanites came completely overwhelming numbers compared to the Nephites, but the Lamanites are scared to death because they're looking at the smaller Nephite army with thick clothing and breastplates and shields and head helmets, and and they realize we, we can't compete with that. And so then you ask the question, what can I do for myself and for my family and, and friends to, to better armor up? And then the next war... He knows, Captain Ronai knows, that the Lamanites aren't going to come ignorantly. They're going to come knowing that if they also have armor, their superior numbers are now going to overwhelm the Nephites. So Captain Ronai goes a step ahead and has the cities fortified with these mounds of dirt. And then the next time the Lamanites come, now they have a picket work on top of those mounds and towers and more fortifications, and he fortifies the border, and we can do all of that individually as we liken the scriptures to our own story today. I love focusing in on that on this level because I think it just the next time some people start opening up that 15, 20 chapter section, it's going to change the way you read it. Yeah. Geography and migrations. Could you give us just a, a little bit of that? Talk about the consistency and some of the details on geography and and migrations that happen in the text. Yeah, there are so many movements, so many major and minor migrations in the text that it's really hard for some some readers of the Book of Mormon to, to stay focused and make sense of what's going on, for instance, when you get into the Book of Mosiah, because you have everything starting in... Nephi with Mosiah, the the first, the father of King Benjamin, who's commanded there to take all that would follow him and leave, and they depart. And they don't seem to know where they're going, but it's about a 20-day journey, roughly, three-week journey, for this, this massive group of people, old, young, frail, strong, everybody, to make this journey from Nephi down to the land of Zarahemla, which is north, which doesn't make sense for us in our context today, because for us, north is always up, south is always down. In the Book of Mormon, it's the reverse, and it has nothing to do with the cardinal direction. It has everything to do with boots on the ground. They're going down to Zarahemla. So wherever you want the Book of Mormon to take place in the external world, your land of Nephi better feel to people on the ground without the benefit of planes and drones and satellite 
maps, it better feel like they're going down, downhill, predominantly when they go north to Zarahemla. When that group leaves, and then Zenith and his group, they don't like Zarahemla. They want to go home. It seems like life was better for them, even with the wars that they were facing with the Lamanites. So they, they convince Mosiah to let a big group of them go back up south to the land of Nephi and repossess that land. And then you've got this parallel story of three kings in Zarahemla, Mosiah, Benjamin, and Mosiah, and three kings in the land of Nephi, Zenith, Noah, and Limhi. Mm. And it's really hard for people to keep that straight that, wait, these are all Nephites, but they're separated now. And so just being able to keep that migration and the timeline associated with that migration straight helps people be less confused and be able to focus on the, the message. Later on, you're going to get multiple migrations. You know, you get the once the seven cities of Lamanites are converted and become the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, the people of Ammon. They're going to migrate up to Jershon. And then when the war begins, and Captain Moroni can see the writing on the wall and knows, uh-oh, this is not going to be good for a group of people who have covenanted never to pick up a sword again. They're going to get slaughtered in Jershon because it's there on the east. And so he relocates them. They migrate then over to Melek, which is the perfect place to put a group of people who are pacifists, who, who aren't going to fight, because there's never any mention of, of battle in Melek. It seems to be tucked there on the west wilderness with no way for the Lamanites to get to them. And so consequently, it's from there that then you get minor migrations, so to speak, military movement, where their young sons, those 2,000 stripling warriors originally, leave their home in Melek, their new home, and go south to Judea. And if you look at the internal map, that makes a whole lot more sense than if you're just throwing out names of places at random. And it's there where the stripling warriors stage their first um, effort against the city of Antipara. And then you get multiple migrations later on after the war chapters end. There's a whole group of Nephites, 5,400 people who they say, we're tired. 5,400 men, besides <laughs> the women and the children, who say, we're, we're done. We want out. And they all migrate northward. And in 63, you also get Hagoth in the West Sea, near the land Bountiful, near the narrow uh, neck that leads into the land northward. He builds the exceedingly large ship, and he sets forth into the sea west and sails northward. All of the major migrations in Alma and Helaman, Helaman three, a lot of the stripling warriors' families leave and go northward. And a, an exceedingly large number of men leave and go northward until they find a land of many waters and rivers and lakes. And then they spread into whatsoever parts of the land they can. And so there's just this huge diaspora, this, this spreading and scattering of the Nephites and, and some of the converted Lamanites. And all of those migrations go northward. Not a single one of them goes southward. I want to hit on that and go one step further. All major migrations in the Book of Mormon tend to go northward in the 19th century context. So now I'm transitioning. I'm shifting gears towards Joseph Smith, mm -hmm. translator of the Book of Mormon. He's living in an era of manifest destiny, a push west. Everything from his perspective 
is east to west. And here we have a Book of Mormon that is telling us of major migrations always to the north. And so the reason why I want to bring this out, we've talked about complexity, migrations, 500 different areas of places and cities and lands and wildernesses and seas. There's really no way that this could be written by a farm boy with three years of education. I love this because like you said, you gave one example of many. There's nothing westward in the migration and yet Joseph's entire world was starting in Vermont and you keep moving west. The frontier of possibilities and discovery and new lands is always to the west, pushed to the west. And then from there in New York, he sends missionaries further west to the frontier. It's always west. He obviously sends missionaries to the north and the south as well. But you, you think about Joseph's world, whether it's geography or culture or government or weather. I mean, he's living in a land where they are making a living off of clearing the land and pulling stumps out and planting seeds to get them to grow. This is his world. This is his expertise. He is a farmer's, a frontier farmer's son, and it is a hard life, hard labor. And yet, in the Book of Mormon, when you come to passages where it talks about anything agrarian, it's like, and we did plant our seeds in the earth, and they did grow exceedingly. And it's like, <laughs> oh, come on. No detail about what went on in the preparation of the soil and then the, the nurturing of those plants and the harvesting and the processing of the food. Nothing. And yet, that's Joseph's world. And when you do get great detail, it's in places like Zenus's allegory. Uh, as Jacob retells that story, and it's about olive trees. Olive trees. Nothing Accurately. that Joseph is associated with. <laughs> it just, it blows me away. So yeah, I stand in awe. That's beautiful. And, and thank you for uh, elaborating on that. Are there any other geographical points, Dr. Griffin, you'd like to highlight or, or talk about? You know, I think, I think it's, the, the main point of the geography for me in the Book of Mormon is, like we mentioned before, that there are ways to read this book to allow the geography to enhance and to enrich my understanding of what God is trying to do with me that are very relevant, very applicable and meaningful for me and for my family and for, for people around me today. That if I don't – if I just say, I don't care about geography – who, who cares? It doesn't matter. That's, that's totally valid. A person can do that and still get <laughs> right. great benefit from reading the book. But in my mind, they're turning a blind eye to all kinds of principles that come off the page in, in powerful ways to make this story become more real. Somehow, when I, when I follow these people through their journeys, even just on an internal map, they become a little more relatable to me. I get a little more engaged with their story. I pay a little more attention to what they're saying and how they're treating each other and what I can learn from that. Absolutely. Virtualscriptures.org. Anything else to plug regarding your research or research on the Book of Mormon you'd like to share? Just stay tuned with virtualscriptures.org. We're, we're working on some pretty exciting modifications to the Book of Mormon app 
chapter by chapter with timeline so that you not only make sense of the migrations and movements of people, but also the timing of when all of these are happening, as well as biographies for each of the people and biographies for each of the, the geographical landmarks that are mentioned, where you can see every instance where they come up in the text and how they relate and why we made decisions about placement that we did. All of that's going to be coming out as we finish it, and then we'll turn some attention to the New Testament stuff again and the Old Testament and the journeys of Paul eventually. So lots of lots of things coming. That's uh, it's awesome. And for those that are interested, we link to this on bookofmormonhistory.com. So feel free to plug in through the website, click through. Uh, we're trying to give easy access for anybody to the best resources that are available. And virtual scriptures to me is, is a must have if you're interested at all in understanding the geography of the text. I have one last question. Very important. Is it harder to teach 1,000 students in a semester or take your wife and 10 children out for a dinner? (laughs) That is a great question. We just did that on Saturday. Took the whole crew to, uh, to a place here on campus that has multiple stations with different kinds of food and it's all you can eat and kind of a buffet style. It's it's high adventure, but they take <laughs> care of each other. And I just took the youngest and my wife took the second youngest and then they yeah. helped each other out. And so I would say, I would say I love both for totally different reasons. There is nothing like being a husband and a father. And there's nothing like being a, a teacher of so many students who just want their faith fortified. They want their testimony strengthened. Life's hard. They're making hard decisions and they're facing major setbacks and and confusion and frustrations and and in some cases abuse or addiction or disease and loss. And it's a very sobering and humbling opportunity to be on the front line in trying to help them build fortifications and personal armor to fight the battles that they face every day, whether it be my children at home or my students in class. It's different, but it's the same battle. For your calling, both as a dad and as a professor, God bless you. Thank you for your time. And I just appreciate so much this opportunity to nerd out with me about (laughs) the Book of Mormon map. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. Thank you, Dr. Griffin. Thank you. That's a wrap for this podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Griffin for his time and expertise today, helping us fly over the Book of Mormon landscape with Mormon by our side. For more information, you can visit us online at www.bookofmormonhistory.com and subscribe either at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen in. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.